0: I'm Mike Wood, and I'm here today with... Justin DeClue, And you're listening to the Very Important Comic Book Podcast. Very Important Comic Book Podcast?
1: We've gone up a level, as opposed to the very fine. Should we start over? (laughs) No,
0: (laughs) let's keep going. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And you're listening to the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast. Yeah, that's right. We don't want to make any promises we can't deliver on. We're fine. Sometimes very fine. And so this week, we are
1: talking about Pretty Deadly.
0: This is a series by Kelly Sue DeConnick, artist Emma Rios, and colorist Jordi Belair. I'm a huge fan of the work of all three. And this series I first heard about at TCAF a couple of years ago, the Toronto Comic Arts Fest. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I saw Emma Rios there talking about her work and career. And I just absolutely had to pick this up. And it is so dynamic and gripping in the visuals, the story, everything. And I, um, it's one a series that I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, as I've been sort of watching a lot of Westerns and things with just alternative lore and American folklore and things like that. And if you're into any of those things, this series hits a lot of those notes. But before we get to that book, we're going to talk about what we've been reading this week. Yeah. What have you been reading, Justin? I listen to a podcast
1: called Get Played and they go, what have you been playing? And I I want to do it in that voice every time. What have you been reading? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Because they're uh, doing a recreation of the Resident Evil 4 merchant. Oh, Uh, whatcha bought? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that's why they do it. So, you know, I guess the path of inspiration yeah. from the video game podcast to video game. This is about a comic book podcast.
0: What you read?
1: So, I've been reading through my journey as usual at the Toronto Public Libraries. I go to their graphic novel section every time I visit, and also their manga section, and I go, What? Do they have that I would be interested in? Because you never know what these places will have. Like, you'll find something, you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And I finally, for the second time, because I've tried this before, picked up the first volume, part one of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure by Hiroiko Araki, part one Phantom Blood. Now, People that are familiar with JoJo will be like, no, hey, no, don't read this one. You should start with part three or part four. Diamond is unbreakable. That's when JoJo really gets to, I don't care. I'm starting (laughs) with part one. I've actually read a few of the late period ones, very much enjoyed them. But I get lost in this cycle that I do sometimes when I get into a manga, which is I... Uh, order through the library system like three in advance or four in advance and then they come all like scattered and I'm like I don't know where I am I'm reading too many so I set a new rule is that I order the one and then I'll order the next one and that's it until I get the next one. Mm. Then that allows, and then I'm allowed to order the next one after that. That's a good idea. So I don't get lost. And I, I'm not trying to, like, jump the gun or anything like that. And if I have a bunch of mangas that I'm reading, you know, in order, then, you know, they'll come when they come.
0: Now, a quick question. Why do people say that about JoJo? Why are there so many different entry points that people can't really agree because on?
1: Because the characters change. So, like... Okay part one is like kind of like a gothic action thing mm-hmm. uh and then as you go along it, they jump generations so like the next story could be about his, the son of that character mm. and like the characters can kind of be a little bit involved or sometimes it'll jump even further and what ends up happening is that the artist writer gets obsessed with like st- is it stands stands is i'm that, not 100 sure that's what the
0: teens call fans
1: these days is uh like every character is like a martial artist and also has this like uh phantom thing that can come out and all has like a different power oh okay and that's, that's not what i was thinking about at yeah all. that's what made uh like jojo really popular and that mm-hmm. doesn't pop up for a few parts until then oh wow so that's why they always say like start later start later but i'm starting at the beginning damn it when there's a vampire
0: man with manga though i mean that sequential numbering lends itself so much to read them in these order yes. versus something like judge Dredd, which we talked about last episode where there's it's such a scattershot flow mm-hmm. to the start of that but series. is that like you a said,
1: barrier of entry if you can't get that first volume and And everyone's trying to get it.
0: Actually, that's a good point.
1: Yeah. Where I look and I'm like, well, this library has uh twenty volumes starting at volume fourteen, so I have to go and get volume one, I guess. Oh yeah. I wonder if kids are just like, you know, when I was a kid, I would just pick up anything. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. Because I didn't have access to that much stuff. Or is it different now because they do have much easier access to things? I wonder. Like when I was a kid, if I could go to a public library and order like from a service that would just bring me my book in like one or two weeks for free at no cost, I would
0: literally be in heaven. Yeah. Before the current library booking system existed, you just have to go to the library and hope someone returned it. Mm -hmm. And And are we
1: lucky though in Toronto? Because I know that the beguiling, I don't know if they still do it, but they were telling the libraries which books to buy.
0: That's pretty good that the library system has the beguiling. Because like they had
1: multiple copies of like copra. Mm. Uh, Michael Fife's comic when it was independently published and not through image mm-hmm. so like the library wouldn't have not consciously bought that themselves
0: I'm pretty sure I saw Ben Mara's Terror Assaulter Omwatch oh, in the man. TPL can you imagine yeah. being a kid and
1: picking up Terror Assaulter? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> kids got to learn about Omwat sometime.
1: Well, there's like broken up sections, <laughs> which is very confusing in the sense that like there's an adult graphic novel section and there's a kid's gra- or teen graphic novel section. But like the decisions of why one goes into the other, I'm not quite sure. Because mm-hmm. you'll find superhero stuff in the adult one. You also find superhero stuff in the teen one.
0: Well, some libraries are, are very, very like demarcated between a mm-hmm. kid section and not kid section. Mm-hmm. Like the one closest to us here. Uh, luck. Yeah, lock library. I mean, they yeah, you the- feel
1: dirty if you walk into the kids section. Yeah, the- <laughs>
0: yeah you literally have to go in like one direction for the kids section or the other direction for everything else.
1: I often uh, go to the North York Central Library, which is not far from where I live Mm -hmm. because it is a massive library. They often have tons of stuff and I only discovered after a decade going there that there is a secret adult graphic novel section on the third floor I had never seen before because it's buried with the novels. And I I just asked a person and like most people my age, I'm terrified of asking for help from anyone even though that when I worked in service jobs, I'd be like, why don't they just ask Ask me why, why are they wandering around and you know do obviously I can think that and then not put in action but I actually ask uh, they have they have library text on each floor and you're like hey can I get uh, could you tell me where this is and they're so happy they're like I will show you like a walk with me here it is and I was like wow there's so much stuff here which I don't think JoJo came from there I think it came from probably the kids section which mm-hmm. is where it's kept even though it's pretty violent for those kind of
0: uh, manga comics so what is it actually about I've never known I, can't I know tell people you. I'm reading okay. it
1: right now yeah uh, like I said there's a vampire man there's fighting uh it, there's tons of stuff i know that like eventually uh one of the kind of parts is like a cross-country adventure like race mm. of some kind oh, so like archie's rc racers yeah exactly <laughs> and uh i mean if you see as i'm flipping through the art here it's also very sexy mm-hmm. and it's been running for a long time like this volume that i have was in 2015 but this was originally published in 1986
0: oh my god yeah okay so, i had no idea it was around that long yeah wow. it's,
1: it's that long it's been running and i wonder how popular jojo's kids these days i wonder it's, like it's on like
0: netflix i think is like they're still doing new anime on there mm-hmm. adaptations of these comics Maybe uh, I mean there's multiple video games and like mm-hmm. cross media things and like crossovers with other IPs. Now I did once download some JoJo's fighting game through what? PS Plus. It was just one of the monthly games. And I played it and thought, this is quite fun and bizarre. As we've listened to the same podcast, yeah.
1: Retronauts, mm-hmm. uh, they talk about how much of an inspiration JoJo had on all of those properties. And that, like, whether we were conscious of it or not, like, if it was Japanese developers, maybe they were inspired by it. And then it kind of bled into, you know, North American video game or even pop culture in general that we just don't know about. So maybe we'll do a JoJo episode w- uh, more and we could do more research. I'm curious. And I could know be more. all like, you know, buff with JoJo energy. And I am like, I could explain it all, Mike. <laughs> no problem. I've read every part. What are you reading? Uh, On the subject of what we're talking about today, I was going to say a slam dunk, which I know you know, and also connects to what we're going to be talking about uh, this week.
0: But before that, what are you reading, Mike? Uh, So I've been reading an image series, and I should actually- For the last five years. (laughs) Last five years. Well, it's been coming out kind of slowly, but um, I should recant something I said in the first episode about how I don't read monthly comics. I read monthly miniseries, or things that seem kind of finite, or things that seem- like they lend themselves well to picking up in single issue form Mm. and an image series i've really liked recently is one called eight billion genies by charles sewell and ryan brown and the hook of the series is that everyone on earth is granted a single wish and everyone finds that out by a personal genie appearing in front of everyone and they look like these little chibi graphics like someone designed them on like a you know early 80s computer, a little floating like blue sprite that mm-hmm. each one looks like the actual person who they are assigned to and they just cheerily inform everyone on earth, like, hi, I'm your personal genie and you've been granted one wish, as if it's like a personal digital assistant. And they're mega chipper and eager and communicative and happy to give you any, you know, advice during the wish-granting process. But once you make your one wish, it's done and the thing disappears. And they've served their purpose and they're delighted to do so.
1: I'm going to guess perhaps chaos? Absolute
0: happens. chaos. Yeah. And what really appealed to me about the book uh, was the pacing and the time structure of each issue is completely different. And the first book covers the first like eight minutes when this happens on Earth, and then the time interval goes up each issue. So the next one is the first eight hours. The next issue is the first eight days. Then weeks, months, years, decades was uh, the most recent issue. And there's one issue remaining, and that's going to cover the first eight centuries Mm. since the the genie incident. Mm -hmm. And it has been such a creative and interesting series because each issue does something with the idea of wishing that I have never conceived of or seen in any other medium usually when these happen it's a very simple like twilight zone or like ec comics one-off story of like oh i'm using my three wishes or my one wish oh no it's backfired oh woe is me but this series has to take into account how things are affecting the world on like an absolute macro level and it's perpetually in every issue introducing Some sort of like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Someone thought of that? That's brilliant or horrible oh my god, that changes everything. I'm always so intrigued each issue to see where each of those decisions will go next. And with the advancing time period in each issue, often that then begats like some longer change that might have been shown in or foretold in the previous issue. It's been absolutely like one of the most creative things I've read in years.
1: And I made a joke that Mike's been reading it for five years because for the last... I'm going to say a couple of years. I'm like, what are you reading, Mike? You're like, ah, 8
0: billion genies. I think maybe one year.
1: And I'm like, still? (laughs) You're still reading 8 billion genies? Oh, man.
0: So you'll understand and appreciate this reference, Justin, but this is what originally drew me to the series was the promise that each issue would include a famous genies variant cover, issue one featuring Andrew Divoff of Wishmaster (laughs) fame. So that's why you
1: wanted it. (laughs) but it's not an original photo it's just a um you know shot from probably one of the wishmaster films i believe so i'm not that familiar with charles
0: sewell's work i think he did curse words is the one that i know he wrote right he did with ryan brown mm-hmm. uh and i really want to read that next based on the strength of this and did he do like a bunch
1: of marvel stuff like venom or am i confusing it with danny Coates? yeah danny Cates, Cates wrote venom yeah.
0: charles sewell wrote i think some daredevil mm, oh that's what it is that's yeah, what yeah because he himself is i believe a practicing lawyer mm-hmm. and he brought a bunch of that still as he writes book. comic books when does he have
1: the time
0: yeah you think uh, the big comic money he put the law thing aside <laughs> yeah. um but yeah this series is is really awesome it's the image second, uh, it's an image series the second last issue just came out recently and um there's been i think some slightly longer gaps because people are allowed to work at their own pace when they're yeah. doing an image book and... so does
1: that mean there's no trade paperback then if like the story isn't complete it's or... not complete yet yeah okay. yeah
0: so single issues are available uh they just announced uh, reprints of issues one through six that have come out with like new covers and uh, I think those are all hitting on the same day this or next week uh, and then issue eight should be out whenever it's done mm-hmm. and it will be the final issue
1: oh well I will finally after have to check it out that'll be Mike's one wish please Justin Read <laughs> One Billion Genies <laughs> and so Speaking of Image Comics, let's Mm -hmm. move on to Pretty
0: Deadly. So for anyone who's heard the name Image Comics, usually the first thing that springs to mind is... Youngblood! Yeah, Youngblood number one. Or Spawn. And Spawn number one, and Savage Dragon and Shadowhawk. Okay,
1: no one has ever thought of <laughs> Savage Dragon and Shadowhawk except for
0: me since I, uh, Image started. I almost bought Wildcats! Wildcats number one. And I say number one because usually those were uh, the only issues. And then you wait six by. months and then issue number two comes out. Yeah, so when Image started in the very early 1990s, it was a, a bunch of predominantly Marvel artists... And writers who left to start their own company and not be beholden to any editorial degree or deadlines, <laughs> deadlines is, is the common uh, joke, but also truth. Mm-hmm. And it was a scattershot, chaotic mess. Yes. And I ate up all of it. And thankfully, with books being so late and delayed, it was very cheap and easy to buy all of them. Oh, yeah. uh, For the most part.
1: I was always a massive fan of Savage Dragon. Speaking Mm -hmm. of monthly comics, I've started, only recently, start buying monthly Savage Dragon, which is still published. Not quite monthly. It's like whenever Eric Larson can kind of get it out. I'm always excited to get a new issue because they're usually self-contained. They are the work of a
0: older man working in the comic book field now my friend joff recently told me uh, in summing up uh recent savage dragon mm-hmm. issues he is single quote was it's basically porn now
1: well how accurate is that uh there is a very graphic issue which is like the big one everybody talks about okay where there is a sex scene because there's image has no comic book code or anything like mm. that Eric Larson is he still one of the like high level managers of Image? I know he's credited in Pretty Deadly. Uh, uh, he was
0: not. No, he was the uh, the publisher. Yeah. Slash potentially like I guess chief creative officer up mm. through the late two thousands. Okay. Yeah.
1: And uh, Savage Dragon is a fun superhero. He lives in Toronto now. Does he, he? a Savage Dragon oh, well. character yet? Yeah, and he teams up with a Toronto based
0: superhero team. What do they call them? Oh, I don't remember. I have to look through the issue. Is it actually clever, or is it some like it stereotype? Is stereotype? Nope, like no the Canucks. <laughs> Uh
1: Maybe a little bit of it, but like Eric Larson does not live in Toronto. Did like a lot of research. That's at All real life locations. It's okay. fun. Um, uh, I think he's going to be moving back to Chicago, which is his usual stomping grounds. Even though that it's not the original Savage Dragon. It's actually his son these days because the OG Savage Dragon died. I, wow. <laughs> but again, How? this is our weekly episode <laughs> where we're in the weeds. <laughs>
0: So, what happened to Image after that, like big superhero boom? Yeah, so there was the original boom that you know some would say was you know a lot of style over substance. Uh, a lot. I would of- <laughs> agree. <laughs> and a fellow named Eric Stevenson, who started out as uh, a like co-writer or fill-in writer and editor on a lot of Rob Liefeld's own titles. Uh, if I recall correctly, uh, eventually took over as Image's publisher around 2009 or so. and oh, So late into the run. Yeah, yeah. Well, at that point, wasn't Rob Liefeld, didn't he have like Extreme Comics? Yeah, with his so sub-label? I think Eric was working at Extreme and potentially for Image as well. Mm-hmm. I might be getting some of these, these facts wrong. But um, Eric Stevenson was appointed the new publisher of Image. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as I understand it, he just undertook some sort of uh, restructuring into how Image works as a company. Yeah. And so, f- since I guess early 2010s, uh, Image has uh, functioned as this very creator owned sort of framework for comic publishing. Yeah, they're not really kind of like a, a heavy handed editorial board. Not really. Like, I think the the publishing department has to obviously like the concept yes, and improve the, the book. And, um, but then how it works is, I mean, the creators just complete the book on their own pace Mm -hmm. if the onus is on them to finish the book and get the pages out get the issues out whenever they want image provides sort of like the template package of like here's you know how things fit together into the pdf with all the branding and whatnot uh -hmm. put your pages in this and then uh send it uh, to the printer it almost
1: sounds like a cd baby or something like that it's like publish your own comics through image yeah yeah um and that means if the comic do the uh, people, like the creatives take on a financial responsibility of the publishing they of the do. book? They do. So
0: I was, yeah, reading about how that works. And these numbers were based on uh, Toronto's Jim Zub's uh, comic Wayward, which is excellent. And Jim Zub, also excellent. So this, this seems accurate, at least as of 2015. Uh, I don't know how much this has changed since. And I, it might have been Jim Zub who I saw talking about this at mm-hmm. uh, TCAF, the Toronto Comic Book Arts Fair. So, uh, it was written here, image comics policy and profits consist of taking a flat fee, which used to be around $2,000 in the early 2010s. It can't be that small now. uh, I wonder. To cover their expenses and make profit, everything else goes to the creative team, where it is split between writer, artist, inker, colorist, etc. However, the fee may eat entire profits. It all falls down to these factors. The volume of issues printed, the cost of the single issue, transportation and storage fees, the price and sales. If it is a printed comic book, then the retailer will take about 45% of the entire sales. After that, there's the printing expense. You pay to the company who printed the comic book, or rather Image does, then you pay the expense to the distributor, Diamond Distributors. In the end, that can leave you with 8% of profits, or 30% from which Image takes flat fee.
1: Okay, so but... So the creators don't have to pay
0: Image though.
1: No, that they they just may never see profit, which is the reality yes. of anything
0: that you do. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So you have to. The onus then is then on the creators to think promote a lot of the book themselves. Mm-hmm. Image will promote it. You know, I guess the same amount that they do any. Yeah, other on book, their website
1: or whatever. On yeah. Social. And or all whatnot. the Image comics usually get distribution in comic book shops mm-hmm. because
0: they're a very well known brand. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I think the branding is key there.
1: Yeah. And I wonder how it works with trade paperbacks too, because image have a policy of the first trade paperback is very cheap. Like mm-hmm. it's usually like ten dollars retail, yeah. if not less. And then it goes up to like twenty bucks after like two, three, four. Cause they want that kind of like easy, you know, um entry way for new readers coming on.
0: Absolutely. And you'll frequently see a thing happen where the first volume of a series is labeled volume one and sadly that winds up being volume the only only. volume yeah yeah so i have a lot of series like that that i wish uh, would continue and um the number one way you can ensure that uh, a book if can, you buy them is well a buying them uh be pre-ordering ask your local comic shop mm, um, that's right all of that helps mm-hmm. Image, I think, probably are the ones who popularize the idea of writing for the trade, yes. as we've talked about. Ah, I hate it. Well, you know what? I hate it with like any sort of ongoing superhero story or something like that. With mm-hmm. Image, I don't really mind it at all, because I think when you're writing for the trade with some sort of creator own book like this, you can structure it in a way that these three volumes are pretty deadly have, yeah. where each one completely tells its own story that's fine, yeah. fairly independently of the others. And I've seen a lot of other series do something similar to this.
1: I think the issue I have is reading those single issues. That's like, this is not a satisfying single issue to read. Mm-hmm. So am I just making a... commitment for it to be collected in a trade later on
0: essentially that raises a good question because i wonder if that like hurts single issue sales down the road when people now sort of know every single image thing is for the most part written for the trade i'd be hard-pressed to think of a single image series i've checked out in the last decade that has not come out in trade paperback
1: yeah and that like isn't paced for trade paperback in the sense that like you know you could have an issue where stuff happens but it's like not that much exciting stuff happens right and right. you're like oh man why i, I guess maybe that's also the, just the realities of the way comics have to be published does image ever do any like ogns like original graphic novels where it's just like it's the first time it's published and it's all those like 150 issue pages. I can't really think of any other than Headlopper, which is a little bit longer mm-hmm. than the usual comic book size.
0: It's The Walking Dead OG and here's Negan.
1: Okay, yeah. I which was like
0: a larger size thing than the typical I Walking I feel Dead like right. that's
1: different. Like uh, Robert Kirkman, who did start The Walking Dead at Image, he's in his own kind of camp of whatever he wants to do. I think he still is Skybound, which is Robert Kirkman's publication arm. I think it's part of Image in some way.
0: Actually, that one might be. Yeah, you'll see a lot of things where a certain family of image books by a similar creator or friends of same creator are or all under be the label yeah yeah it's so like robert kirkman has his own uh, publishing wing skybound entertainment mm-hmm. which um you know the books are published through image but i think it's just the idea of
1: like this is a brand if you like me you will like my brands so mm-hmm. which is why you should you know
0: buy any skybound book right right
1: and so uh, today we're talking about pretty deadly
0: and so who is the writer of this comic so the writer is kelly sue de and the artist is emma rios
1: Have you read any Kelly Sue DeConnick books before? I mean,
0: I had so most
1: famous for Captain Marvel.
0: Yeah, but before that, I first saw Kelly Sue DeConnick and Emma Rios's work on an amazing Marvel miniseries about Norman Osborn in prison. (laughs) What? (laughs) Wait, why were you reading this? It was it got some great acclaim on a couple of comic sites Mm -hmm. and um, it was from around 2010 or so and it was just called Osborn. It's since been collected as Osborn Evil Incarnate. Mm. So everything has to have a subtitle now. Yeah. And it was just about Norman Osborn being sentenced to prison and deciding to osborne it up and go absolutely crazy but in a way that sort of combines like businessman norman osborne and green goblin in a way i hadn't really kind of seen before wait is this pre or post him being president of the united states oh i don't even know that that happened oh wait did that or maybe confusing
1: him he was some kind of like leader of the avengers or something like that oh a a dark avengers i think this is after that in fact
0: like this series kind of stood alone i wouldn't be surprised if this was the fallout from that Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. he goes to prison and um and these creators didn't work on on that in any regard that i know of but it worked as a a awesome one-off thing of just like not the typical prison escape story But something that where... Every time I expected uh, some, like the, both the writing or the art to veer in one direction, it did something else. Oh, interesting. And it was so visually and narratively interesting that it felt like something different than what Marvel was probably putting out at the time mm-hmm. if I was reading all the mainstream books.
1: So was that just a dodge to say you've never read DeConnick's
0: Captain Marvel run? Oh, I did read several you of them. You did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then I read a couple of, uh, like maybe the first two or three trades of her Captain Marvel run because uh, I wanted to see what she was doing next and really enjoyed the character and world building in that.
1: Yeah, so everything in the MCU Captain Marvel movie is from her run on, you know, the Carol Danvers Captain Marvel.
0: Yeah, like she pretty much created the like the modernized version of Carol Danvers. <laughs> so after Captain Marvel, I'm not quite sure like what else she did. I see her name every now and there. Well, she did an amazing image series uh, with uh, awesome illustrator Valentine Delandro uh, called Bitch Planet.
1: Oh, I did read that. Yeah. That's another one where it's like, I can't wait for volume three and it's like nope that's it you're done
0: yeah Only two yeah probably just the two volumes and um that was a weird one because it felt very popular yeah that one that one got a lot of buzz mm-hmm. and then it just kind of it, it like
1: took a long time yeah. for the second part to come out and then it just kind of fizzled away
0: I, I think sure there's more too I think just they did know. a bunch of one shots oh, too okay. yeah there was some sort of branding like Bitch Planet Grindhouse or yes. something like that I remember seeing that and they, I think they published maybe three or four one shots so I wonder if those are collected mm. we should look that. up. but that's actually an interesting thing about Image is that people can sort of just take breaks publish another volume of a thing whenever you like like the the onus is entirely on the creators to decide when they want to put things out mm-hmm. and I think I was seeing at again at TCAF it was either maybe Chip Zdarsky or Brian K. Vaughan or someone talking about how Image pays out twice a year that's so, it? and I think that six month gap is kind of then built into the idea of like sort of putting a trade out yeah. and then at some point be- between those two payout gaps and then like your next payout includes your revenue from that trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're
1: really doing this for the fun of it
0: basically. You really kind of have to. And I think, so I wonder how much that really works for newer creators who don't have the cachet to be able to, you know, draw new readers to a book. Yeah that uh they're completely taking a chance on. well
1: i think that's why like you see a lot of image books are people that you know from something else Mm. you're like oh this person who worked at maybe marvel and dc and have a run that's famous enough they're writing this now so would you like to read this because
0: you're aware of them So I ran into it in a year when Emma Rios was on multiple panels and talking about her career in art. And so I, I had to pick the book up. It had been out for about five years at that point. So I picked up volume one. And one thing that also struck me was uh, the colorist, Jordi Belair, one of my favorite colorists of the last like 10 to 15 years. What have they colored? So they've colored uh, Tom King's Vision, uh-huh. uh, Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight. Whoa, classics. She's also colored uh, The Manhattan Project by Jonathan Hickman, um, Cullen Bunn's Magneto Run. How would you describe but uh, her their coloring. style? Yeah, so... There's something about her coloring that stands out so distinctly in everything she's worked on, where there's something very, like, earthy, very pastel. And she's the one who started that colorist day, didn't she? She did. On Twitter.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was
0: her. Yeah, where yeah. she's
1: like, no one talks about colorists. They're so important.
0: They really like, are.
1: And they are. They, you don't you, In the same way you don't talk about inkers either. Like mm-hmm. They're so important to comics, but we don't really realize it consciously.
0: When we read these kind of comics. Exactly. And you even see it even on recolorings, which I'm so against, but there's ways to do them well. And even like last week when we were talking about Judge Dredd's Apocalypse War, mm-hmm. I was not a fan of the modern coloring yeah. on that. I just, it's, it's just, just felt really like, hackneyed. Uh, and... Yeah, down
1: the middle. Yeah. Like, let's just give it to someone who does this regularly and they get the basic colors down but there's no art
0: to it yeah and and Jordy Blair is like a true craftsperson to the point where that is now a hook on a book for me if I see them coloring
1: now you pick up this comic and Mm. you're like ah western are you a western comics fan I am
0: much more than the movies I love weird western tales the DC Mm. series uh also Jonah Hex and Jonah Hex which has alternated between being like a very classic style western and occasionally embracing like the supernatural element depending Mm -hmm. on like what run it is and who's writing it at the time and um this felt like kind of a halfway point towards that because the supernatural element is kind of happening as a sort of behind the scenes undercurrent like like the of world of the first volume of the I first would say. volume yeah, yeah. and like just to jump ahead a little bit Only the first volume of the three volumes of this so far is a Western.
1: I get the feeling that wasn't originally the plan.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if it was or not. Like, I'm curious to know.
1: Because, like, the way that it's like, there'll be more adventures of Mm -hmm. uh, a character of this book. And it seems like the little thumbnail that they have is a Western panel. Yeah, (laughs) Death Face Ginny Returns. So what's interesting about this comic is that it's seemingly going to be about a character named Death Face Ginny. And as the series goes on, it almost seems like... The writer and artist are like, Do we want it to be about
0: this character? Like, we kind of want to do other stuff around her. Yeah. And I think that's interesting and unexpected, but also fair. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's their book. They can do whatever they want. They, well, they can do whatever they want. Um, but I kind of like that direction. The idea of keeping it fresh and sort of going to a different time period in each book. And, you know, th- it retroactively turns the first volume into the sort of lore and establishing stuff for this universe and the folklore that they're creating
1: i will say that like if you're listening to this and you're interested in this comic which i would highly recommend i love this comic when it ended and i read all three volumes i was like there's gotta be like a hardcover deluxe collection of these nope there is not there's not unfortunately
0: yeah Uh, most image stuff never makes it past the like the first version trade paperback with like mm -hmm. the six issues
1: and reading this first volume which i think was probably my favorite oh so like readers who are coming on i will say it is a little bit of an intimidating comic that when you're
0: reading it, especially the first issue, you'll be going, what is this about? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the story of this it comic? It does not hold your hand early no, on. No, absolutely not. Um, and I think that's fine. It's really like on, on you to sort of pay a lot of attention mm-hmm. to the paneling and the art as you go because every page oh, feels and completely different than the Her paneling last. is yeah.
1: wild in this comic mm-hmm. where it's often like panels within panels bleeding into the other. Um, just like, the entire picture making a shape to kind
0: of define the storytelling of it. Yeah, yeah, with like things happening in the background that are mm-hmm. part of a story being told with the present in the foreground. <laughs>
1: The main characters of this first volume are a young girl Mm -hmm. who is following an older man who is blind.
0: But is he? Maybe he sees something else. It telegraphs that early on with uh, someone asking about his eyes and, mm-hmm. and do they still hurt or, or whoever they phrase it. And so it, le- it leads you to think, is this going to be like a lone wolf and cub kind of thing? Yes. Who is this old That's man? It feels. Who's this young woman? And
1: they're going around telling tales and pay attention to that first tale because mm-hmm. it is the backbone of this first volume yeah. that is told.
0: Now, one thing I wish was in this first volume mm-hmm. because I bought this in trades as many people do with Image Comics. There was apparently back matter... Uh, which is the industry phrase for when there's additional, like, story context and production notes. Why would or maybe. they not include it in Why? this volume? So it's not just not included after issue one. It's not included in volume one at all. So the back matter for the first few issues is included at the end of volume two. Mm-hmm. And this character here...
1: Oh, he's uh, pointing to a character the listener cannot see.
0: The listener cannot see. I, I keep forgetting podcasts are an audio-only medium. Yes. So there's a character introduced in the first issue named Johnny Coyote, and he seems to know a talking raven uh, that he refers to as Molly. And the single issue of the first issue included a like short prose story at the back called "The Disgrace of the Scoundrels Johnny Coyote and the Lady Molly Raven." And so
1: a- giving them background of who they are, because you, I did not get that in this first volume. So in the after the next one, I was like, "Who are these characters?" Yeah. Because- so we
0: still don't know, and I, you know, that's that's not on the writers at all. That's mm-hmm. uh, something I wish was. Um, you know, laid out that way in publishing.
1: I can understand. I've heard people like Matt Fraction talk about like his Casanova series that he wanted there to be Back Matter or Ed Brubaker in his like the fade out series mm-hmm. that is only in the single issues. So like you get it there and so to encourage you to buy them. Mm-hmm. But if it is like <laughs> essential storytelling content. That becomes an issue when
0: you read it in trade Yeah, like I don't need the production notes to be included yeah. mid-trade, but if there's something like this short prose story that's essential to the character development, mm-hmm. I, I really wish it was in its right spot. There's a great Vertigo series called The Last God from a couple of years ago. It's a like dark fantasy and there's long prose bits at the end of each issue and they're absolutely essential. And thankfully, like the hardcover edition includes all of them where they're supposed to mm-hmm. be.
1: But even if you don't have that, because yeah. everything is kind of mid-adventure, if you will, when it starts, mm-hmm. expecting you to kind of kind of glom onto these things that are being presented to you and you can find context through the actions of what's taking place because there's like a a gunslinger called big alice that is hunting the young girl and foxy her kind of mentor figure we don't know how those two people got together and i'm not even going to try to explain who they are because you'd be like what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) when it finally does get explained of like they're the embodiment of such and such and uh, death takes form in this as well Mm-hmm. and is a major player in the story and it even includes like going to a death dimension at the end where anything can happen
0: and i really like that the version of death in this is not the stereotypical like whenever death appears in a western he's some like man in gunslinger, black kind of yeah. gunslinger like this is a like skull headed yeah uh, like mystical an
1: animal skull head yeah oh, yeah also uh, it took me a while at the beginning uh, to be like, wait, who is narrating this story? And it, mm. you learn later on, and this becomes very clear in the second volume, mm-hmm. that it is a uh, skeleton of a rabbit talking to a butterfly <laughs> yeah where the first issue you're like you wouldn't be very clear about that
0: yeah and you kind of love that with the different time periods mm-hmm. of each volume the rabbit and the butterfly stay Yeah, they the stay narrators. constant they're the yeah. framing device yeah
1: and so i think the first volume was the most conventional one that there's like usually an action scene every issue and they're really fun mm-hmm. and you this world is being revealed to you the sins the characters have created And while still allowing them to be kind of cool and you want to see more adventures with them, I I will say one moment I went, is this a flashback to something else that happened or is it happening right now where you see like characters were saved early on at a different massacre than the massacre that just happened? Mm. And I think that you could say that as a negative or you could also say, pay attention when you're reading. It could be taken both ways. I think
0: like I first read it when I picked it up at TCAF in, oh, Mm. maybe five years ago. And rereading it for this podcast, it felt like an interesting return to that world. And like I just had like brief memories of what each character was and what they represented. And it did kind of gel into place again as I was reading it. But it is a book that absolutely, I would say, demands your attention to the narrative and paneling.
1: And I think that it's satisfying to pay attention like Mm -hmm. it's worth doing that kind of uh, work of paying attention to a comic you're reading but listen in the world where anything can take you away uh, to get that instant thrill sit down and read pretty deadly and give it the attention that it deserves now when i was reading this i was like oh you guys are on a razor thin wire of cultural appropriation (laughs) says i the white guy reading this and i think they do a good job of not again as a white guy saying that of like getting into like well let's talk about indigenous culture or something like that mm-hmm. and kind of have it within the context of this because it's like is it this person's place to write about that kind of stuff and i think they kind of invent enough of their own not to feel like that
0: exactly that's exactly uh, very well said it makes the smart decision to focus more on the invented lore Mm -hmm. and this like sort of alternate plane of existence with death and these, uh, reapers, reapers and his family and such. And, and have that be the focal point rather than trying to, to make any sort of parallel. Mm -hmm. And like the
1: first volume is a very clear quest story. The Mm -hmm. characters, when I say clear, but they're going towards something. What surprised me about the second volume is it essentially takes place in like one place and every issue takes place seemingly over an hour Like the story takes place. This one moves from the old West to world war one in the trenches. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to spoil like what it's about. I think that is this the one where they start? No, it's in volume three where they actually give you a page of like, okay, listen, if, Just in case something didn't make sense, let us explain it to you Mm -hmm. when you start this new chapter.
0: And I like that too. But yeah, in this one, they take the lore and ideas from the first one and they further them out into something where you can now see a framework happening of you can do standalone adventures. Yeah,
1: I think it also deepens this first one because it clarifies
0: a lot of the stuff happening in the first one. It does. It does. Volume one ends with basically setting in place a character named Death Face Ginny mm-hmm. who will persist through the remaining stories and time periods. Well, almost all as, the characters persist. I mean, they do persist, yeah. yeah.
1: Especially a character that, like, uh, there's an ending to volume one where you're like, is that a happy ending? What happened to that character? Mm-hmm. Where she's kind of forced into a position she was born into. And then in second volume, you're like, oh no, she's okay. And all the characters who were in the first volume are still around, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting of how they take it. And they... They kind of solidify these ideas of like, not to be too spoilery, but essentially these characters are like reapers of a specific thing. So they represent like
0: revenge or vengeance or uh, or courage or, or like thirst or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like the Horsemen of the Apocalypse, yes. but not limited to four. Like there could be mm-hmm. endless amounts of these and maybe we'll see more of them in future volumes. And
1: the reveal that like characters can become those things as well. Mm -hmm. It's very moving. I thought the ending of Volume 2 was very moving in the way that it ends.
0: Oh, yeah. That's my favorite sequence in this series so far. Mm -hmm. Volume 2... Without getting too spoilery, uh, is set in World War One. Mm-hmm. The general idea is that the Reaper of War has created World War One. Mm-hmm. He's whipped society into a frenzy similar to the Block Mania. Mm-hmm. Of yeah, the last pretty much story. of the
1: last episode. What's important is that one of the characters from the first part is dying. Mm-hmm. And she makes a kind of like wish or request and that she wants one of her sons to or grandson to come from world war one and just hold her hand for one last time Mm -hmm. so two of the reapers that we knew in the previous volume go to the trenches and this takes place over one night try to save this young man from this conflict while at the same time also trying to end world war
0: one by facing off the reaper of war the stakes are both like personal and astronomical at the same time and it balances both of those things and is perpetually cutting back and forth between those things in both the narrative and the art in such a wonderful way
1: Mm -hmm. i really love volume two i didn't struggle with volume three but i found it because of the the conclusion it comes to Mm -hmm. it is unsatisfying in its design because of what like the point of obsession that it wants to discuss and i also reading this one which volume three takes place in like early hollywood it's very reminiscent of a lot of comics that have come out recently like ed brubaker's the fade out is also like set during that period of hollywood as well yeah yeah and so i liked it but i didn't like it as much as volume one and two Mm -hmm. and it also feels like a transitional comic In the sense that, like, they're setting up a story, especially with Death Face Ginny, that they want to kind of uh revisiting uh
0: further adventures Mm -hmm. like this furthers death face jenny's story as well as introducing us to some new reapers who have settled in like a sort of nineteen 30s yeah like early hollywood early early hollywood very
1: non-sound so that would be uh you know very early
0: yeah so one of them uh has become like a sleazy hollywood producer who's struggling to find his way back and is taking advantage of a young girl to do so, mm-hmm. and uh, stealing her story ideas, but promising her the you know the world, yeah. the world. And um, so, a character. Now, I always I love this focal point character in this because I'm such a fan of any story that involves the early days of like magic and illusion and mm-hmm. hoaxes and things. So we have a fake clairvoyant who is, uh, what's his stage name? Oh, he has the, a really cool The Conjure stage. Man. Yeah, the con- Conjuring Man, I Conjuring think. Conjuring Man. You just said that's a cool stage name. It it's is kind of cool on name. the nose, but I guess it tells you what I you like need to it. know. And um, he finds out that, now is it his younger sister? It's a family member it's a, that yeah. passes away. So he finds out- Who that, was very present in the second volume. Yes, she was. And so he finds out about this family member who was killed, who's the one who this one Hollywood mogul was taking advantage of. hmm And uh, so he summons Death Face Ginny to help investigate the supposed murder, Mm -hmm. and she gives him 48 hours. So she'll basically be by his side for 48 hours uh, to look into this in both a sort of very practical detective-y kind of level and a supernatural level. And it basically becomes like a sort of early Hollywood noir.
1: Yes. But also, spoiler alert, Mm a bit of a shaggy dog story as well, Mm -hmm. because the reason that the woman died is like a very personal one. And it isn't like, aha, I can finally prove with all the evidence that it's this person that did it. And I, I emotionally understand where they were going for. I find the ending of uh, death phase, Ginny, very sad where she's left at the end of the story Mm -hmm. because like it's setting up like, okay, she will not let go of the thing and it dooms her. Like, but if she comes back, that will be dealt with, I think, more.
0: Yeah, and I do hope it comes back. And and like we were saying, anyone creating an image book is allowed to you know, return to it at any time. The onus is on them yeah. as to whether it's it's profitable or not for them. And like, is, is
1: their time worth it? Exactly. To do it?
0: And if you look at the publishing dates for these, I think it was like 2013 and 2014 for the first two volumes, and I think five years later for volume three. Yeah,
1: this was published. I was surprised fairly recently the third volume. Uh, let's look. 2020 was volume uh, three.
0: Wow. So even later than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wonder, if, like, are they done with it? Are they going to come back to it? I feel like it's a case of just having um, free time aligned for different creators. Mm. Uh, so I'm not sure what Emma Rios is working right now, but I think we talked earlier about how Kelly Sue DeConnick's uh, now doing a lot of...
1: We didn't mention it. I hinted at it. Oh, you hinted at it. Yeah, that she's doing yeah. a lot of interpretation of manga stuff, specifically mm-hmm. Slam Dunk she did a lot of.
0: Yeah, yeah. What Which is, is the is only n- one on that list I knew. It's not
1: translation, because <laughs> yeah. I don't think she speaks Japanese, but it's kind of like, well, how would you describe it? Like, localization? That's a good word, yeah, yeah. Like
0: video games, where it's not just about, like, we need this dialect translated. It's like we need it actually sort of... Understandable
1: culturally to people in North America america yeah yeah and yeah so she's been doing that for a while and i don't know if she's been writing any other big books i was looking and it didn't seem like she had
0: yeah like that might, that might be a very full-time gig i with know all the titles on that list and her
1: husband matt fraction started their own kind of like image publishing line as well oh being, yeah
0: uh milk fed i think it was called yeah yeah something like that and so i hope there's more of this
1: and i hope that people listening who have made it this far are going to read it
0: it's available at your local library at least it's available at ours mm-hmm. and um absolutely wonderful beautiful book if you are looking for an impulse purchase or see it on your local show i mean
1: the first volume is probably pretty yeah 10 bucks
0: 10 bucks so great entry point easy,
1: easy. pick that up mm-hmm. This is like the Years ultimate TCAF The
0: book. ultimate TCAF book. Uh, what, what is TCAF for people that don't know? You know what? And we should talk about it. And we're going to do a, a dedicated episode on it upcoming. But TCAF is the Toronto Comic Arts Fest. <laughs> <Yeah>. Not fair. <laughs> and it's held every May at the Toronto Reference Library.
1: Could you move to somewhere a little bit bigger, please? <laughs> it's a little cramped in the Toronto Reference Library. I do
0: hope it never leaves the Reference Library. Okay. Uh, and the Toronto Reference Library, if you've uh, never seen it, looks like the Tyrell Court building from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And, Multiple floors. Yep. Yeah, and, and they don't, they don't thing. shut it down
1: as a library when TCAF is happening either.
0: Yeah so it's this amazing um, mostly small press and independent creator uh, comic fair completely free it runs on a Saturday and Sunday and there might be other panels like earlier in the week too that are panels only but the main sort of vendor tabling that takes over the library happens on Saturday. I
1: wonder if they'll do like a couple years ago they had like a whole other building that they had. Did you ever visit that one? In Cumberland Terrace? Yeah they had like uh, an anniversary celebration of Image Comics Mm that my brother who was visiting at the time said like oh we got to go to this and they had like a whole bunch of other tables there too yeah so they were like expanding and they didn't do that
0: last year i don't think yeah last year there was still this sort of like covid things in effect i suppose but um yeah some years they'll take over like adjacent buildings and yeah. there'll be other stuff happening in um cumberland terrace and some hotel nearby things like that and this year So this year it'll actually be happening earlier than I expected. Normally it's in May, but this year it'll be on April 29th to 30th, uh, 2023, at Mm -hmm. the Toronto Reference Library. Yep. Lots of stuff to find. I always buy too much stuff. I spend so much money there every year on, like, you know, people's independent comics and Oh, yeah, because you may
1: never be able to see them again in any other form. Unless
0: maybe you buy them from their website directly, but you
1: you'll learn about it at tcaf Mm -hmm. i used to go through like the independent and like write every comic i was interested in it got too overwhelming though like i can't do that
0: yeah you just kind of got to wing it like it's it's such a like wonderfully chaotic like thing to be there and just have crowds everywhere and library patrons like we said like the library doesn't close and be highly aware you're looking at a book ask yourself
1: can i buy this easily somewhere else and if you can don't buy that book Buy something else. Like, buy something from Yeah, like, the don't independent. buy it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you <laughs> might you, see... Like, a Fantagraphics table or something like that.
0: Yeah, like, you can get those later. I mean, like, try and spend your money on independent creators mm-hmm. who are only there because a lot of them have come from, like, the U.S. or Europe or abroad. Like, I'm actually kind of amazed. I always ask where people have come from. And, like, people travel from quite far so to get far. to TK. I remember buying, like, yeah.
1: a Brazilian comic from mm-hmm. someone. I think it's, like, the famous like independent comic book festival like people are always fighting tooth and nail to like get into it too Mm -hmm. so yeah so come to tcaf this was an infomercial for tcaf so as per usual you can send us letters at the very fine comic book podcast at gmail.com
0: what's in the letter bag this week
1: Oh, the letter bag. I like that phrasing of it. Our first letter is from... Oh my, what a guy. And he says... Dear VFCPB. <laughs> well, that's one way to... <laughs> Very fine comic book podcast. I've been a collector of 40 years, and lately I've been observing changes in the way people grade books. For example, 20 years ago, date stamps were considered a full two-point defect. Now people find them charming. Ten years ago, a subscription increase would automatically drop a book to a two. But recently, someone told me that they made a book appealing because it showed history. Are these collecting trends you've noticed that have confused you or you disagreed with...
0: Now, so what he's talking about mm-hmm. when he says two points? What is that, Mike? So he's referring to the new fashion of grading books on a scale of zero to ten. Is it new? I is feel it like new? It's been around since like for like twenty years. Okay. I feel. Yeah. I guess I still consider things like that. <laughs> that new, <laughs> old man, Mike. Um, or as we refer to regarding the title of the podcast. I mean, the very fine part of the nomenclature refers to a time when comics were simply graded on these very abject terms of yeah, like very, fine, good, very fine, good. Yeah poor near mint mint etc uh i don't follow comic I mean, rating trends at all not at uh, all and i kind of uh wish to never uh so i mean that's a very good question and i actually really like the idea of like the nostalgia for certain things he mentioned like what a, like a subscription, a subscription stamp or
1: crease i mean wouldn't a subscription I, crease be worth more because that means it was a direct market book they were receiving in the mail and maybe there weren't
0: that many of those that could be um i it's I don't know I just like,
1: want to trade paperback please
0: yeah like I don't mind like these these library versions right here are all like dinged up in the corners and like well loved mm-hmm. and I like that I'm, I've never been very pedantic about the condition of anything in my collection unless it's something super super out of print super meaningful for me well like when I told you don't drop these yeah
1: yeah <laughs> I, I, I didn't even drop them I was holding <laughs> them in my hand and Mike was like oh you should I should wrap those
0: in plastic and I'm like should you
1: I think what I said after that is like Mike you're gonna die and all these books will be <laughs> donated to Salvation Army
0: <laughs> absolutely but I mean I don't begrudge anyone like no, wanting exactly. to grade or slab or take care of their comics. It's just, it's never been something for me. And it's also the, is it
1: CCG comic or CGC? Comic Grading Corporation or something like that? Yeah. Uh, they, they are individuals who just make up whatever rules they want. Like it doesn't really
0: mean anything at the end of the day, right? Yeah, I've heard stories about like how arbitrary it all is. Like there used to be something where... Like, a book is worth more if it's signed. Oh, but now uh, there has to be a witness to the signature. <laughs> and so any book that was signed before like a CGC-approved witness witness the signature, it's not considered as valuable as a... Uh,
1: and for people that can't visualize this because you've never seen it, CGC books are literally in a slab of plastic that you you can get access to it if you get like a tool to crack it open right yeah the idea though is you will
0: never open or read it again Mm -hmm. and I I don't have a single comic in my collection that I would not want to like crack open and read read. hmm I'm trying to think if there's anything no I don't think so like even the poly bags that I have them in I'm like
1: I hate these it only gets caught in the tape when it comes out
0: horrible design please someone think of something better how have they not and I went looking for this
1: uh, of like bags that are just like just have a very light kind of thing that like when you close and they're like resealable. Oh, that would be good. Just like a strip across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Do those exist? Uh, I looked and I couldn't find access to any of them that were financially affordable
0: oh, when bad. it comes
1: to kind of comic book stuff like that. Yeah. So instead, I just have to fold over the piece of tape so it doesn't get caught when the book comes out of the bag and it's annoying and I don't like it.
0: Yeah, every now and then like when... When I buy like bagged and boarded back issues, and I see that like inch-long tape yeah. coming off, I, I just get caught in the back. I just peel the whole thing off and just mm. put like a little maybe you know small less than a centimeter piece. of And think about
1: CGC books is that like how many would you even want graded? Like uh, the first appearance right. of the Punisher, the first appearance of like Wolverine, like classic golden age but beyond that like i've seen videos of people talking and
0: their walls are filled with cgc graded yeah. things and i'm like what could those possibly be i wonder yeah. and you know what when i go to someone's like place and they have this on the wall I think that's damned exciting and I want to ask them the stories of where all those came from. So again, n- I'm not begrudging you been anyone. to someone's house and they had them on the wall? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen them. In but but a- not a lot. It wasn't like, here's a wall yeah. covered. He had maybe like eight or ten and they were cool issues. They were all Spidey themed key issues. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know the story. I wonder, I think that like things have also gained a lot of value during the pandemic because
1: like the collector's market went Mm. like super popular you hear it about all the time in video games i think that happened with comics as well i think it did we have a store around the corner paradise comics that like they're only cgc graded books now because they probably take a percentage of when it's so that's more worthwhile than like having to buy new issues that they can't sell Mm. and then they have to put it in a room somewhere
0: i believe the owner of paradise was like the first like Toronto based, like CGC approved Mm. like person to be able to like grade books and or submit books to Mm -hmm. CGC or whatnot. So I mean, that might be why that's that's become a focus of there.
1: I mean, it's a bummer for me because I would love a comic book store near to where I live. Mm-hmm. And there's just not many reasons for me to visit there unless they have amazing uh, garage sales or they get like 30 long boxes in, which they recently got. And I got like a whole bunch of stuff out of there for like a quarter each. So oh, wow. That's
0: why I want to go to comic book shops. Like I, When I'm looking for even a back issue that might be a key issue, I genuinely don't care about the condition. When I was at Fan Expo, when both Jim Shooter and Mike Lee were there, who uh, worked in Secret Wars... Mm-hmm i thought you know what i've never owned a single issue of of secret wars i had like an old beat-up trade of it let me get the like spidey black suit cover secret wars number eight let me try and find like the cheapest possible one and i found one vendor who had like five different conditions of it ranging from like twenty dollars to hundreds of dollars and i was like just give me the cheapest one i'm I'm fine with that i mean there's so many of those were printed like they're not rare they're not rare (laughs) i just wanted to have one so that i could have it
1: and so maybe we'll get into cgc with this podcast
0: (laughs) Or maybe we'll get into it with some CGC fans who email us. And no, I mean, I like know. we say, I hope not.
1: Very happy um, that people want to collect Yeah, people want there.
0: to. I, I don't begrudge anyone doing no. it. Uh, it's just, it never been something for me.
1: No, and maybe those books will ex- uh,
0: continue existing, and they can be photographed like uh, the gigantic Tashin Spider-Man book I have. Actually, that's a good point. Like, this giant Tashin collection of Spidey 1 through 21.
1: Which we have sitting currently beside my desk, because I was showing
0: Mike it earlier. Which would kill a small child if it fell off a shelf. Yes. This thing is absolutely massive massive.
1: And the gimmick of it is
0: that the comics inside of it were photographed from the original print comics, not plates or original art. Yeah. So it has this amazing, like very comic-y look about it Mm -hmm. but as clean as it could possibly be like they found the best possible issues they could and And those couldn't exist without collectors so so. good for them out there doing that kind of stuff maybe there's some weird paper melting pulse someday that melts every (laughs) non-slab comic in the world
1: (laughs) but if someone does that that would be like a CGC person who does it right Like (laughs) like CGC themselves yeah 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 if they could figure out how to do that they would love
0: to do that absolutely
1: that would also destroy though any you know discoveries that could be found that really could yeah so uh, Uh, We'll see. CGC, please don't do it. Don't do it. Maybe that's not even their name. We're only saying that so, you know, we we don't get the goons on us.
0: (laughs) The Comic Goon Corporation. (laughs) Hired goons. No.
1: (laughs) Hired goons. So, So what are we doing next week, Justin? Next week, uh, we've been asked since we started this podcast are you going to do manga and as you may have noticed from the last two episodes i do read them so Mm -hmm. why not i'm picking the most like basic manga (laughs) we could possibly talk about that is incredibly popular and that everybody knows ranma one and a half now this is a comic manga when that when i pitched it to mike he went i know that i can talk about that so that's <laughs> which fun which
0: i can do for very few mangas i was much more of an anime person in the 90s but the thing is manga was so expensive back then and oh we yeah, can talk to that next nice like, issue
1: but like single issue like viz yeah uh, comic
0: reprints so, viz were publishing like single issues of translated Rama for maybe like $4 in 90s money. $4? Yeah, that would be equivalent to paying $8 on a single issue today that you'd read and in it was like two 32 minutes. 32 pages, right? 32 pages, but literally not even like the full pages of the volumes. Like, I think they would zoom in on specific panels and. No, really? Like, you flip through it and be done in two minutes. Mm-hmm and it was the only way to get it that we did not have the renaissance of like easily available like trade paper dark horse books. is like oh you want to read uh, Little Wolf and Cub do, do you here have it in the tiniest volume we could possibly
1: publish yeah, yeah. take out your magnifying glass and you're like alright I'm reading it that's oh, what me and my had brother had so we'll be talking a lot of manga memories and specifically Rhyme One and a Half next week on the Very Fine Comic Book Podcast until then my name is Justin Glue I'm Mike Wood keep reading comics